text for tonight is Titus chapter 2. best nap this afternoon. I love you, but y'all wear me out sometimes. Um, I appreciate Jamie Coomer. Jamie, are you in here? I haven't seen him. Jamie's not out in in the room right now. Um, I appreciate Jamie Coomer filling in for me last week. Uh, Carly and I went to a, a pastor and pastor's wife retreat with some other pastors where we talked about things of uh, church and leadership, and it was it was one of the best I've ever been to. So it's not fun being away from you, but it was absolutely worth it. Um, and I think that Brother Dan and Miss Eileen have attended that particular gathering for quite some time. Um, and I would say this, in 31 years when you hire your next pastor, make sure he attends that, okay? Make sure he attends it. It was absolutely worth it. Um, it was absolutely worth it. So we are in Titus chapter 2. This is a passage, one verse, very declarative. Now we remember, always we have to remember what when we're studying God's word. We have to remember the context. Some of you are getting that. You'll understand again tonight why context is crucial and critical to studying God's word, both for the preacher and for the people. It is crucial, it is critical, it is a non-negotiable component, okay? If context is omitted, particularly willfully omitted, someone needs to go. They may just need to go to a side room like they did in the New Testament and somebody explain, hey, we stick to the context here. And if the preacher or the people, one of them refuses to accept that admonition, then somebody needs to go, either the preacher or the people. But give them a chance first. It may be that he's just having a bad day. It may just be that you didn't hear what he wanted you to hear, right? It could go one of the way or the other. But here we have uh, Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is being given charge over the churches in Crete which if you'll remember, Crete is an island. Uh, It's an island made up of multiple churches and cities. Uh, You know, Titus is one of those guys you don't feel bad for, like he's being assigned a destination set of churches. Like it's a beautiful place. Google it, look it up. It's a beautiful place. This man is in charge of these churches, but these churches, um, they're, they're not... They're not great churches, right? So the destination's fantastic, but the churches aren't so great. They've got lots of problems. There are multiple churches situated around this island, and this one man has received charge from Titus to go in and to finish what, Timoth, uh, what Paul had started. And so he has a specific task and a f- specific purpose to go in and to pastor these people. For some reason, we don't know, we, re- we gather this from information earlier in chapter one, for some reason, Paul left without having finished what it was that he had set out to do. And so he is to put back into order or to situate into order things that Paul was unable to complete or conclude before he departed and went on. And so here he is. In this particular passage of scripture in chapter 2 verse 15, 
Titus is receiving an instruction. And when you're reading the pastoral epistles, if you are a pastor or if you are a primary teacher within the organization of our local church, then this can seem very applicable to you. You're like, okay, I understand this makes sense to me. But we have to remember that even though this was written to Titus, it is for all of us. There is learning and understanding that does make sense and does carry itself with application to all of us. For the preacher teachers, that are in the room, whether you are uh, a pastor called and situated as an under-shepherd of the local church, again, the application seems clear and straightforward. If you are charged with the responsibility of teaching in the local church, then this is a matter of immediate importance to you. Um, and let me just say on this, that, that those of you who hold teaching responsibilities in the church, number one, I applaud your effort because many of you hold regular jobs um, or at least the person that supports you holds a regular job. And then you have to, on top of all of your other responsibilities, you have to prepare yourself to teach, which is an excruciating difficult task. It requires both mind, body, and soul to prepare lessons. Um, And then just dealing with the spiritual components and aspects of spiritual warfare in and of itself, uh, it deserves a medal, if not a plaque. If not a plaque, at least a certificate that we print last second. You deserve some type of recognition. But we should also note that you have, when we preach this, you may not have the, uh, you may not have the equivalent of a call and an election by a church to lead that body, but you have an important task that puts you, uh, that can put you in a position of, of compromise if you're not teaching rightfully and handling rightfully the word of God. And we as a church, we as pastors, but also as a church, we have to be mindful that we maintain, uh, we maintain a level of standard even for those that are teaching in life groups or in Sunday school classes or in equipped classes because we have to make sure that God's word is rightly handled, rightly delivered to the people of God. It is precious, it is powerful, it is anointed, and it's living. And as such, we must make sure that it is. But this has an application to the church because because of who the men of God are who are set as pastors of the church, the people of God must recognize and understand who those men are, what they're about, what they should be doing, and how you should respond to them. And the reason that God gives churches pastors is because God loves his church. The reason God gives churches pastors is because God loves his church. He doesn't just give church pastors because you need someone to stand up here and entertain you week after week, but he gives you pastors because these are men that are called on their potential and then equipped according to his promise to shape you and train you and lead you according to his will and his way for his purposes. And so God loves the church, so he gives the church pastors to lead them. And pastors, if you're in here, and I've got my my group over here, um, the reason that God gives pastor churches is because God loves pastors. Men, the Lord has given us this church because he loves us. And sometimes the way he loves us is by giving us some hard church members to chisel off our rough edges. And sometimes the way he loves us is by giving us soft church members to hold us up when we feel like falling down. This passage brings 
into sight. It brings into view our understanding of how important our relationship is, but it focuses primarily on the pastor's position and practice of preaching and teaching God's word and the understanding that what he does in this pulpit, whether it be the pulpit up here or the pulpit in other settings, is as a messenger under the authority of God. What is represented here, even in this moment, must not be a personal opinion or bias. It must be as a representative of the living God's word. And here is what he says. Paul tells Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's look at these. The natural divisions here are to declare these things, semicolon, to exhort and rebuke with all authority, and then the final third point that we could examine just based on the natural divisions within the uh, structure of the sentences is to let no one disregard you. So first we begin with declare these things. Now Paul finishes the second chapter in the same way that he begins the second chapter, with a command, a strong command to teach these things. We look at... Titus chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul writes this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then again, in verse 15, he concludes this. He says, teach these things. Now, let's look at these things, and then we'll look at what it means to teach them. To teach these things, what are these things? Well, evidently, it's what he has mentioned in verses 2 through 14, but it will also serve as a transition to what he's going to say in the next passage, though the authoritativeness of the pastor's command really lends itself heavily on what will follow, whereas what should be taught lends itself to what proceeds. We read in chapter 2, verse 2 through 13, or 2 through 14, just so that we have a grasping of what should be taught. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, I didn't say it, he did. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and your teaching show, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own passion, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things. 
talk about these things, teach these things. He gives us the positive, be these things, and the negative, don't be these things, and the grace of God, which is you will not receive what you deserve, but you will receive by God's grace and goodness in Jesus Christ, you will receive what you don't deserve. You will receive what you don't deserve. So the first instruction to the pastor preacher man is to speak, use your voice. Use your voice. It's a misconception that we can be, I'm talking to the church now, just in case you wanted to know. It's a misconception that we can be faithful to the things of God by living a good lifestyle and never using our mouth to talk about the things of God. It is a misconception to suppose that we can evangelize, that we can proselytize, and that we can share the gospel by living a good life, or as some have misquoted a a famous ancient monk, use words if necessary. Here's the problem with that suggestion or the thought that we can live out our faith without ever using our words. Jesus was perfect, and he even used his words to teach people. So unless you have a lifestyle that's more stellar and glowing than Jesus Christ, I would suggest you also use the words to explain the things of God. I would suggest that you also use your voice to make a sound. Remember that we are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. To be a witness means to tell the story of what you've seen to be true in Jesus Christ, what you've experienced in Jesus Christ. And we must talk and we must tell, and we must speak. But there's one thing that is not included in declaration or talking, regardless of what your translation speaks of. There's one component of human action that is not uh, contained within this word, and that is silence. Let me say it another way. None of us Christians have permission to be silent about the things of God. We must be vocal. We must be speaking. And I would say on the pastoral point, what he's calling us to and declaring is he's calling us, number one, to tell people what God expects and then to talk to them about how to apply that to their life. That's what we see contained in these preceding verses. He tells them, this is what you should do. And then he talks to them about why it's important that they would live out their faith. We see this also be a declaration point throughout some of the other pastoral epistles. If you go to Colossians or if you go to Philippians or if you even go to Ephesians, the first half of those books tend to be focused on doctrine and theology. This is what we know to be true about who God is, what God is, and who Jesus Christ is. And then the second half of those books tends to lend itself towards application. Because we know these things about God to be true, now let's talk about how it should implement itself into our life or affect our lives. And so when he says to declare or to speak, he's referring to the preceding passages and he's calling us to use our voices to tell people about the ways and things of God and then to talk to people about how God's word should be applied in life. We move forward in the verse into a second natural division that's available to us. He says to exhort and to rebuke. Again, we look at verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. The word exhort means to make a call from being close up and personal. 
It refers to believers offering up evidence that stands up in God's court. So we exhort people. We give the evidence that stands up in God's court. To exhort or to provide exhortation means to make a call. It invites people, according to God's word, to live their lives in such a way that their livelihood and lifestyles could stand up in God's court. And as such, we must be people who walk with individuals. Now, there's a portion of exhortation that is not just definition, but it's descriptive. It is calling people to God's ways in a specific nature. It is up close and personal. It's up close and personal. In other words, in order to be effective and faithful to the task of exhortation, we must be involved with other people. Must be involved with other people. You cannot be faithful in the task of exhorting a congregation if you do so from a far off distance. You know what they say about leaders who lead too far out in front of their people? The people confuse them. They confuse whether or not that leader is still a part of them or a part of the enemy. And if pastors and preachers lead, which they should, and teach, which they should, and exhort, which they must, they must do so up close and personal with the people that they're involved with. It's critical. He goes on and he says, not only must they exhort, but they also must rebuke. To rebuke means to convince with solid, compelling evidence, especially to expose or to prove wrong. Some people within the church need encouragement. Other people within the church need censure. This means to connect their lifestyle with evidence, to show with compelling evidence whether or not their lifestyle is right or their lifestyle is wrong within the context of Scripture. Now, we want to exhort and we want to rebuke. I think that this gives us a really good opportunity to talk about two distinct phrases or two distinct terms that are sometimes mistaken within the local church. Because again, we are talking about the context of this verse, which is Paul writing to Titus, who is being left in charge of the churches in Crete, and his responsibility is namely to put into order the things that Paul didn't have a chance to put into order. And if there's things that need to be put in order that Paul didn't have time to put in order, that means there must be things that are out of order. And if there are things that are out of order in the church, he's not talking about, he's talking about people. Because the church is people. And if there are things that are not in order within the church, it's the people that aren't in order. Not all of them, but some of them. And so Titus's task is to exhort and to rebuke people, not systems, not products, not organizational philosophies and thoughts, but people. As such, if you're going to exhort, being close beside, offering uh, instruction, if you're going to rebuke, which is to call people out based on compelling evidence, then you need to understand the difference between discipline and punishment. And I think that we have a mistake with this. I think that there has been a longstanding, probably not here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church because you're my favorite people and in my mind you're perfect, but in other churches, let's say, 
there is a disruption and a confusion between what discipline and punishment is. You see, I think that punishment is more reactive, reacting to something that's been done, and it's focused on what's happened in the past rather than focusing what's on the future, whereas discipline is responsive. You are responding to what has happened in the past with an emphasis on what should be in the future. See, we punish people being sometimes disconnected. Anyone can punish any person without being connected to them. But to discipline someone, you have an aim of shaping them in a positive way for the future. Therefore, you are invested in who they are. A pastor's role is not to punish the people. And for the sake of all of my brothers that serve really unkind churches, it's not the role of the people to punish the pastor. The role of the pastor is under the authority of the one true living God is to disciple the people and and because the pastor has put himself up close and beside, remember exhortation, he's careful, considerate, considerate and attentive to how he disciplines people because how they are treated directly impacts him who is invested personally in their lives. And how the pastor's heart is shaped after the, or shaped for the people will directly impact how the pastor disciples and disciplines people when necessary. People say, well, who is he to do that? Who is he to discipline anyone? And Paul says, after he tells him to exhort and rebuke, he tells Titus in a friendly reminder, the reason that you can do this is because you're God's man. Because God called you to be a pastor. The way that he actually says is he says to exhort and to rebuke with all authority. The way like a dictatorial regime where the pastor has all authority, it speaks of none lacking, but it is always used in reference to God sent messages. In other words, the pastor is the messenger that carries the commands, instructions, and word from King Jesus to. So who is he? He's one that is called out by message to God's people because And we know that the word of God shapes people. We know the word of God shapes people and the messenger is responsible. He has the responsibility of carrying the word of God to declare it, to exhort it, and then to rebuke with the word of God in hand. And this authority refers back to God. It is a command that is fitting of the situation. Ability. Ability of people of God, so within firmness. Uh, it 
they understood that the past regularly to the reproof and rebuke and exhortation of God's word and that he will apply that same gentleness that the Lord has applied to him to his people. And so we go back to chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then he says, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. In, uh, in T- Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, who is uh, about a mid-30s young preacher who is being handed, the ra- uh, handed control of the largest church in that time period, the largest Christian church in that time period. He's been handed that control, and Paul tells Timothy, don't let the people disregard you because of your age. Specifically, he says, don't let people look down upon you because of your age and think, who is this guy to tell us anything? And we know they had some... And, Ephesus, not Crete, but in Ephesus where Timothy was being sent, they had some horrible problems. In the preacher world, that's what we call a dumpster fire, right? Like the church was an absolute wreck, so much of a wreck that Paul is naming names as he's writing this letter to Timothy. But now writing to Titus, he says, don't let the people despise you. Don't let them disregard you. But he's not saying, don't let them look down upon you. It's the same English word, but it's a different Greek word. In this particular case, what he's saying is he says, don't let the people think around you. Don't let the people think around you. Don't let the people, don't let the people overthink situations in such a way that they would usurp your authority or so that they would apply their personal bias to circumvent the things that you're teaching. Now remember, the pastor preacher must remain rooted in the word of God and he must rightly handle the word of God and the people should trust that the preacher teacher is giving the word of God and men, when we stand and preach from the pulpit, we better be sure that what we're giving them is the unadulterated word of God. It must be the unadulterated word of God. And you should trust that you're getting the word of God, not forfeiting your reason to act as a Berean and to go search out and to confirm the things that have been said are truly the word of God, but men that stand in the pulpit of the living God must make sure that they give the true word of God and handle it rightly. And what the preacher is being instructed to here is to make sure that no one think around him or overthink what's being said in such a way that they would inject their personal bias into the message. Let's just clear this up. Sometimes people are so convinced that they know what God's word says, it doesn't matter how faithfully a man stands in the pulpit and executes the delivery of a message of God's word, they are convinced that they They know what God's word says and they're not willing to listen to anything else but their own opinion. And as such, there are occasions where that preconceived personal bias will lead an individual within the church to circumvent the authority of the pastor of the local church in an effort to make sure that their viewpoint is heard over the pastor's. 
And I just want to remind you that when that takes place, what you're doing is not just circumventing a man that looks public to you, but you're circumventing a messenger that's been sent and ordained by the living God. And so he says, don't let people think around you. And that was a problem in Crete. You had people that were, that were making up their minds with false teaching. We go back to chapter one, we can see it. For there are many who are insubordinate. Chapter one, verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, who are empty talkers, who have a personal bias. And they're going to use the premise of their personal bias to circumvent the authority of what God's word says through God's man. And you know what Paul tells Titus? He tells, Paul tells Titus that, that something that churches don't really like to hear, particularly in this pre-Christian culture filled with a bunch of millennials that think everyone has an opinion and what's right for you is right for you and what's wrong for me can be right for you and it doesn't matter. What he's telling them is he's saying, take a stand on the word of God and don't back down. Have some courage over the things of God. Take a stand And don't give an inch. This is certainly not an excuse not to love people. It's certainly not an excuse to back down. But it is permission to say, thus saith the Lord, and don't say anything else. And certainly what you must do is you must not allow those who are empty talkers or those who have an insubordinate, rebellious, unrepentant spirit, you must not allow them to have the microphone. Why not? And why is it so serious? Because what's at stake is the heart of the bride that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for. And the reason that pastors must grow up and stand strong on the word of God is because you are at risk. And there must be no compromise. There must be no compromise, not even the slightest bit, when it comes to the public preaching and teaching of God's word. It must be in line with God's rules, God's way, and God's word without question. That's it. And I'll tell you, because the pastors have been entrusted charged, commanded to teach because the pastors have been called to exhort and to rebuke and because the pastors have been given all authority to do these things, it's the pastors who hold the responsibility to make sure these things are being done. But I'm going to tell you, friends, having met you and having spent time with you and looking forward to the years to come, it's essential and critical that we remember these things. Because God said it and because you're worth it. You are worth giving the truth to. Whether it be hard truth or soft truth, a good truth or a challenging truth, you are worth it. And so we get back to the point that we began with. As we study God's word, as we consider God's word as we think about the ways God's word has been communicated to us, we must always think about God's word within the context of God's word. I know y'all have heard me say this before, but context is both key and king. And when you bury me out there on that soccer field, you can put it on my gravestone. So we have, again, Titus chapter 2, verse 15. 
It's a big statement. It's a big verse. It's a verse that sets into place a standard of order within the local church that the pastor has a very important responsibility and he has been entrusted with a great amount of authority that should not be taken lightly. And I pray that you people who hear the preaching of God's word would understand the gravity of what the preachers and pastors and teachers are charged to carry and that you would listen with loving hearts and that you would respond with obedient spirits. Because ultimately, we are God's bride together. And God gives churches pastors because he loves churches and God gives pastors churches because he loves pastors. And we are blessed. I want to invite us to have a time of invitation. You may need to uh, make a decision tonight. You may need to uh, come forward to pray to receive Jesus Christ. I never want to. I never want to assume that everyone is a Christian, and that the Lord isn't doing something through His preached word. And so if you're here tonight and you would like to pray to receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, we're going to have an invitation, which means in just a moment, we're going to stand, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to sing a song. And if you feel convicted to receive Jesus as your Savior and you want to be forgiven of your sins, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take me by the hand or one of our other ministers by the hand and say, hey, I just need to be saved. Uh, We would love to pray with you and to celebrate what God's doing. Perhaps you would like to join the church or follow a decision for Jesus and believers' baptism. This would be a great time for you to respond in that way. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe you just need someone to pray with you or pray over you. It would be an absolute privilege to share in prayer for whatever is going on in your life. And so during the invitation, if you want someone to pray with you, I would be glad to, or one of our ministers would be glad to. And if for some reason we have people with you, we'll pull somebody out of the, out of the congregation and they will pray with you. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for the night that we could study your word. Oh, how good it is that you would trust us with such mighty words. And Lord, I pray that the church would be God, I pray that our church would be all that you want us to be because we understand that the words that you give us and the way that you give it and the order you give us, it's all so that we will be shaped as your bride for the wedding day when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, returns for us. And so we can't take lightly what it is that you're calling us to and we can't miss the urgency because the day is drawing near when you will come back for us and we are excited about it. Lord, I ask that you would help us to respond as you've called us to, whether it be a response to the gospel to receive salvation by placing faith in Jesus Christ, maybe coming forward to ask to be baptized or join the church, or maybe just to be prayed over. Whatever the call is, Lord, I pray that obedience would be the response. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. The invitation is open.